Welcome to People Helping People, the podcast for social entrepreneurs who want to build a social impact business. I'm your host, Adam Morris, and today we're going to explore affordable housing with a superstar from LA, Tara Boroskis of the Community Corporation of Santa Monica. She's been at the helm of the Community Corporation for the last 10 years, and now they have over 2,000 properties. What I love about their approach is that it's not just about providing affordable housing, but also providing the support and the community building that the residents need. I live in Columbus, Ohio, where affordable housing is a big topic, but also people complain if traffic adds an additional five minutes to their 20 minute commute. So I'm super curious to dive into how Tara is solving this issue in a place where these issues are compounded in a way that's greater than I can imagine. So Tara, welcome on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Can we start off? Can you give us just a background about what Community Corporation does? Sure. Community Corp is a nonprofit that was founded in 1982 by community leaders who were concerned about gentrification happening in Santa Monica. For those of you who aren't familiar, Santa Monica is a coastal town um, in California near Los Angeles and about 80,000 people in eight square miles. There was this very tangible evidence of gentrification happening, of families having to leave because the housing was becoming so unaffordable. So they were able to advocate to start our nonprofit. So fast forward to 2024, we've been operating for 42 years and we have over 2000 affordable homes in one of the most expensive and unaffordable parts of LA County. So we're very proud of the work that we've done over these many years. Uh, We are a long-term owner So, um, you know, that gives people a lot of comfort is that they know who we are. We've been around for a long time and we are accessible. So that's in essence what Community Corp does. We um, build new housing, we operate our existing housing, and we interact with the community. I'd love to walk through the life cycle of finding a new location and developing it. Like, what does that look like? Mm, It's looked like very different things over the years. Um, Right now, currently, we have, let's see, two projects under construction, one in Los Angeles, one in Santa Monica, and then we have probably 10 more in various planning stages. So um, affordable housing takes a long time to develop. So the planning part can be three to five years alone before we even start construction. The way we find our housing is really just what's for sale on the open market. Um, So we're just in the real estate sphere with everyone else who's looking to buy property and we compete with them and we sometimes are successful and able to buy properties. Sometimes we also compete for city owned or publicly owned sites, but that's the majority of our housing is we just buy it on the, the real estate market. Got it. And then is there a lot of work that has to go in? Uh, before you even start construction? Oh, absolutely. The timeline, like I said, three to five years is just the planning. So we have to go through all our feasibility to see if it will work. For affordable housing, we do a lot of community work, and we'll probably talk more about that. But we do a lot of community engagement to help people understand what we're building, to solicit their input, particularly on design, answer questions. So that process can take some time. Um, And the biggest part is really the funding. Affordable housing funding is extremely complicated, especially in L.A., So that alone can take three years or more. I've seen it go even longer than that because there isn't just one funding source to build our housing. We usually have to compete for four or five different funding sources. 
And of course, none of them align in terms of timing. So <laughs> we might apply for one, we might get it and then sit and wait six months to apply for the next one. So it's not the most efficient process, unfortunately, but it has been overall a successful model. You know, the, the low-income housing tax credit is the primary vehicle that we use. And it's a national program that's been around since the 80s. And it's been the largest producer of affordable housing nationwide. So it works, but it, it certainly needs an overhaul, I guess is what I'll say. Got it. So it sounds like it's not the easiest thing to navigate and compete for. Mm. Got it. Absolutely. Now, a lot of us joke around that you have to like brain damage to be in this business. But but obviously, <laughs> the bigger goal is that we actually like the end result, which is housing people that need it. Yeah. Well, and there's also a sustainability component to the work that you do, correct? Well, yes, absolutely. So economic sustainability, certainly we want to provide housing that's permanently affordable for people at their income levels, right? So that they can stay there and they can foresee their future. They can raise their kids or they can age in place without fear of losing their housing. Environmental sustainability wise, obviously as well. So that's a big focus of ours, especially just in light of climate change. Santa Monica is already quite a leader on the climate change front. They have a climate action adaptation plan that we try to align with. But yes, absolutely. For probably the last 20, 30 years, we've been one of the leaders, I would say, in building green affordable housing. So not only for climate change, but also for our residents, it's much healthier. It's more efficient in terms of utility costs. And usually it involves things like community gardens, which our residents love. So lots of good reasons to do it. Just as a quick tangent before we dive into other things, I'm curious, like, what does it mean to do environmental sustainable construction? Mm, yeah, well, over the years, that's certainly changed. It really involves usually working with a rating system like LEED, which is via the U.S. Green Building Council. But there are certainly other frameworks as well. So you just try to look at all the different categories like water conservation, energy efficiency, indoor air quality. So there's, you know, a variety of approaches. Um, and then we choose the ones that make the most sense and try to get as high of a rating as we can. We're trying to get lead gold and platinum on most of our buildings, and we've been successful with that, mostly by using climate, like passive strategies. So maximizing natural air and light. Amazingly, it's one of the easiest things to do and the least expensive. So we do that. We also do solar panels. Obviously, California is an amazing place to have as much solar as possible. And then water retention increasingly in California has become important because of the drought. So that that's evolved over time. Right now we're in all electric mode. So all of our new housing is all electric. So there's no natural gas. And that's because of the negative effects on climate. So um, and our residents like it. They like to not have to deal with gas leaks in their units. So now we want to go back and retrofit all of our buildings. We have 95 buildings right now. 95 buildings. I just got it. That, that's really amazing. Yeah, yeah. Probably 80 of them still have some form of natural gas. So, you know, we're hoping over the next 10 years or so to be able to pull the gas out of the buildings. But that's quite an expensive endeavor. So it'll take some time. So now on the other side of the equation, what does this look like for residents who are applying for affordable housing? Like what backgrounds are they coming from and how do they qualify? Oh, gosh, all kinds of backgrounds. I, I think one thing I like people to know about affordable housing, particularly when you put it in higher resource or affluent neighborhoods, is that it creates diverse neighborhoods. So a lot of these areas like Santa Monica probably could have just become white affluent enclaves if it wasn't for affordable housing. And I think it really contributes to the character of a city by having, you know, cultural diversity, socioeconomic diversity. So those are all 
the reasons of why we focus specifically on high resource neighborhoods. On this thread a little bit, like, do you find pushback when you go into an affluent neighborhood of bringing in kind of a diverse socioeconomic background? Absolutely. Yeah. And I won't digress probably too deeply into this, although I could, but even to the point where some cities and properties had restrictive covenants that were recorded on properties back in the 30s and 40s to specifically keep out certain people, certain demographics, cultural demographics. And then sort of this silent undertone is, you know, people of lower incomes are bad. So we want them to stay out. Right. And unfortunately, we're still fighting that in various forms. I've I've had people say, I don't want janitors living next to me. Like somehow they equate a low income with a lower quality person. It's during the pandemic, it was especially interesting. So when I was doing community outreach for a particularly tough neighborhood, I guess I'll say. And so what I tried to do is illustrate Do you all know how important a grocery store worker is right now during the pandemic? They are our heroes. Nobody could deny that. They are the types of people that would live in our housing. Then everyone got real quiet. So, um, you know, when you start to illustrate the types of jobs people have that just don't pay a lot of money or that it could be your aging grandparent or it could be your college student who's just getting their first job that doesn't pay a lot. Those are the kinds of conversations that I think are impactful, then people really start to understand. They push back a little bit less. They may still have some of their biases, but they usually lose their steam in the arguments a little bit more. Um, but yeah, that that part is real unfortunate. Over my 24 years building affordable housing all over California, the arguments sound sadly quite similar. Um, so it doesn't matter if you're in a small desert town in the middle of nowhere, or if you're in Orange County or L.A., there's still a lot of those biases. So that's part of actually what keeps me going is to try to conquer that. That's something that's very valuable in terms of when you get people together from different socioeconomic backgrounds living in a close area, you get much better conversations. You, you get much better understanding of each other. Um, and it just adds so much to to the community. Right. So yeah, I'd love to tell you a little bit about the resident experience. So first of all, how they get into our housing, but then what it does over time. So at least where we are in LA, there's a huge undersupply of affordable housing. And unfortunately, most of LA is becoming more and more unaffordable. In Santa Monica, the waiting list is over 8,000 people. So it's really sad. It's really hard. But I always tell people, keep the faith and just stay on the list and keep trying. Um, You know, so usually it involves every jurisdiction is different. So throughout the whole country, it might look a little bit different. But generally speaking, there's usually some kind of a waiting list process that is governed by fair housing principles. You can prioritize certain classes of people, like, for example, people who are being evicted, people with disabilities. And usually the jurisdictions will determine the priority. So Santa Monica has its own set and then people apply, wait in line, and then they are sorted by those criteria and priorities. The process can be short or it can be long. Unfortunately, it just depends. For us, it depends on the supply of the type of unit. Where we are in LA, there's a huge demand for family housing, which means larger two and three bedroom units. There's less supply of that. So the demand and the time to get one of those units is higher. So I tell people, if you're willing to take a studio or one bedroom, and you have less people in your household, you'll probably get housed faster. That's how the process works. Um, A lot of people complain about it. It's, you know, bureaucratic. It takes time. You know, 
and there's not much we can do about it. We use government funding. We need to abide by all the regulations and it just takes time. But I tell people, if you're patient, you'll get to the finish line and the housing is permanent. So as long as you pay your rent and follow the rules, you can stay as long as you want. So that's what's a miracle about it and going to what it does for our residents, particularly in high resource and affluent neighborhoods, their kids can go to good schools. And I think that's a game changer in terms of how do you really start to address poverty and how do you lift people out of lower income circumstances to give them opportunities for better jobs, hopefully in the future, right? Because maybe they have access to better educational opportunities, better childcare. Certainly even things like good quality transit are important so that you can get to a job more reliably. I'm totally bought into the idea that there should be housing in high resource and affluent neighborhoods. Many people don't like it and don't agree, but I'm going to keep doing it for that very reason, is the impact it has on people, the opportunity it gives people. I imagine as well, like for people coming out of poverty, being able to live in a more affluent area, they take that knowledge back to their community. And so it lifts up not just the individual, but a lot of others as well who might not realize what a different path looks like. So going to the impact on our residents beyond what I just described in terms of economic opportunity and education we do a lot of programs in our buildings. I really love this about kind of what I was reading is like, it's not just, hey, here's some housing, hands off, go and live there, right? You have a much more hands-on approach. Definitely, yeah. We manage all our own properties and maintain them. So I think it makes a big difference because we're accessible, we're there, we're overseeing our properties. We do a variety of programs that try to address the gaps that lower-income households face. So even if they're in a high-resource neighborhood and their rent is affordable to them, it's 30% of whatever their income is, they still may not be able to afford organic produce at Whole Foods, right? They still may not be able to afford childcare because it's so expensive or maintaining vehicles or any number of other things that are very expensive in our society, particularly in Southern California. So we provide programs that are free to our residents that try to address the gaps best we can with our resources that are, you know, somewhat constrained and limited, but we're able to do a lot. Actually, we have a robust after school program where we have tutors who provide after school homework support, enrichment programs, games. So all kinds of things to keep the kids engaged and occupied so the parents can work and the kids can grow and get to know each other in their properties. Another one we have is community gardens. So many of our buildings have community gardens. We're ever expanding that program. We have an amazing partnership with a group called Growing Hope Gardens, who does a lot of this work for us and in partnership with us. What does that look like? So they actually are able to fundraise gardens for our residents at our properties. We usually do it sort of in tandem, and then they'll run them because they have deep garden expertise. So they will create the garden in partnership with the residents. They'll have meetings. What would you want to grow here? What would you want to see here? They teach the residents how to caretake the garden. So over time, the residents get to be front and center and feel ownership in the gardens. And very interestingly, it's wildly popular and our residents are constantly asking, hey, can we get one at our building? They like not only the access to the fresh produce and seeing things grow, but they like the community with their fellow neighbors. I remember there was one garden installation where somebody said, well, I'd never met 
one of my neighbors before today, which I was like, well, that's a bit sad, but you know, so we have more work to do, but like the garden is what got him out of his unit and got him meeting the neighbors. A lot of times it has these other magical side benefits beyond just the produce itself. But certainly there's, there's something people say they love just about seeing things grow in their own property. Like it feels like a real home to them. We do fitness classes also that are free for our residents. They love that. We have like Zumba, hip hop dancing, yoga, all kinds of things. Um, we do art classes. It's for kids and adults. So we're really trying to get at quality of life. And that's really like beyond like housing people. It's really about well-being, well-being of the person, well-being of the community. So really that combination of affordable, permanent, stable housing plus these programs that kind of address well-being, to me, that's the magical combo. And and that's what I plan to keep doing with my life. <laughs> I love that. How has that evolved over the last decade? It's certainly been a process of learning, right? So we've tried partnering with with agencies. Then we realized, you know, we, we kind of like having ownership and hiring our own people to do the services at the property. So that's certainly one thing we had to figure out. And then also that there isn't a cookie cutter approach. There isn't one program that might just apply at all buildings, right? Because people move into buildings and they start to create their own communities and they have their own needs. One building, there might be more small children and so they want more kind of playtime activities. One might have more people aging in place so then they want more resiliency type programs. So we've really learned to listen to our residents and take in input and try to create programs that will be specific to them. And what sort of effect have you seen that have on the residents in your properties? Hmm. That's a good question. And I have to confess, we're not the best at data collection. Like we just, there's not enough hours in the day, not enough staff. But I would say anecdotally, you can certainly talk to people and you can hear their stories right away about how the housing has impacted their lives. In terms of the programs, I don't know if we really have data to show that they're, for example, performing better in school. I would guess that they are, but we don't actually have too much of that data. We try to measure engagement because if you're getting people to the programs, you know they're going to benefit from it. So we try to do as much outreach as we can so that we can get people there. And we try new things. Sometimes things work and sometimes they don't. We've been doing a cultural um, festival and that's been really wonderful, but we had to kind of figure out the right strategy for it. But we've allowed people from different buildings to showcase their cultures. So last year we had a program that they had an Ethiopian coffee ceremony, which is really amazing. If you've never watched one, try to find one or watch it on YouTube. It is so beautiful and so intricate and interesting and it builds community. So, you know, people were able to experience that. There's also, you know, for example, maybe folklorico dancing. People get to learn about each other's cultures and then the greater community also gets the benefit of learning about the culture. Plus, it seems like that that's a lot of fun to be able to share those stories. And for a company that's so focused on community building, to have that as part of your ethos of like, yeah, let's share these different cultural backgrounds, it seems to be a great way to uplift that. Yeah, we, and we certainly just get many stories of residents. People reach out to me directly all the time just to say, I just want you to know what this means for my life. Like, And really a lot of it just has to do with the feeling of security and safety, that they can finally relax, that they can finally plan, that they can imagine and dream for a future for their kids, or they can age in place without worrying that they will be homeless or that they won't be able to afford food or anything. I've, I've talked to some people who say they live specifically in Santa Monica, even though they're 
they're wealthy and they could live anywhere. They choose Santa Monica because it has more affordable housing and more more of a diverse community. Personally, I love that diverse community because you do see that. You see these different snippets of culture and it's like, hey, here's how we can celebrate our life in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, Is there any advice you would give to people running housing projects in different areas of the country if they're looking to start something up? Well, I would say definitely try to provide programs for residents that will engage them, whatever that may look like and whatever resources you have. But I do think community building in each property is important so that residents get to know each other. When we look at our society and how so many buildings, people don't really know their neighbors I feel like it creates a lack of safety, right? Just think about an emergency. Say, you know, here there's earthquakes, right? And if we're not looking out for each other and helping each other during those times, what what's going to happen to our communities? I think the first step is people need to get to know each other. They can appreciate each other for their different backgrounds or different cultures. I talked to one of our residents at a property who said, the building was becoming intergenerational. And what was wonderful about that, she was an older woman and said, the young teenagers would help her carry her groceries. And then she would help, you know, the moms and watch the little kids while they went to the grocery store. So you see these, these kind of organic things happening that create these supportive communities. So I just, I really encourage other developers of housing, whether it's affordable or not, to try to think through how do you build community at your buildings, whether it's in the way you design buildings to make sure that there's places to interact or, you know, commune, but also the programs themselves. And just that notion of, hey, when community comes together, there's certain things that we face in our own life that other people in our community might be able to hop out with. And likewise, there's things that we can connect with. And that's really like how humanity thrives, you know, is when community comes together and supports each other. That's why it's so hard to understand why we get so much pushback. And I will say we get less in Santa Monica only because we've been here so many years. And most most people know who we are and what our ethos is. We still do get pushback. But I, like I said, it's many times just much more emotion driven. Here right now, there's a big effort to create more density, more opportunities to upzone neighborhoods. And people are really upset about that um, because they don't want their their low scale neighborhoods to change. That's part of it. I also think maybe there, you know, sometimes could be biases, right? We don't want those people living here. We want our little community nearby where I live. Somebody put a sign up that said, we want this to be a family community. So and that made me think, hmm, so families don't live in apartments or like, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, yeah, family which type of family are you talking about? So yeah, so there's definitely a lot of rhetoric. We definitely need to show people that affordable housing can contribute to a neighborhood. So we do that with designs that are very intentional, that try to fit in with the neighborhood, that are high quality. And like I said, also just explaining to people the type of housing we run, make sure we're a good neighbor, that we can be responsive. Because not everything's perfect. Certainly there's things here and there that we have to address. Um, but, you know, we commit to doing that. So we try to demystify that this is not going to detract from your neighborhood. But, you yeah. know, it's a little bit tough sell right now. There's um, we're working on a property um, that's in the planning stages. There, there's going to be housing on a parking lot of a church and it's on a major boulevard. And right behind there's four single family homes. And they said, well, we bought a house next to a church in the 1970s. We didn't buy a house next to an apartment building. And I said, I understand that. I I understand that's a big change. 
but it also is on a major boulevard. It's an amazing place for housing. It's near transit and schools and all kinds of things. And, you know, unfortunately, it's inevitable. Big cities need to accommodate for more housing. They haven't done it historically adequately enough. So so here we are. And sometimes you don't see the possibility of what will be because the current state is what you know. And so it's hard to envision, hey, this is how this makes my life better. Yeah, I've heard yeah. a lot of interesting arguments about blocking people's air, which I thought was interesting. I'm like, wait a sec, you know, air goes around buildings, right? So, but I mean, I really try to listen because sometimes there's legitimate questions and concerns, perhaps shading their solar panels or windows that look into their windows. And those are some things we can address. We can change our designs to try to be sensitive to our neighbors. In one case, neighbor said, you know, we're not that excited about this building, but if you put a coffee shop on the ground floor that we can go to, we'll be more excited. And we did. We're like, that's something we can do, you know. So I think that dialogue is super important with the community to understand what are the needs. Every neighborhood's different. The needs are different. And then see what we can do to address it. And that, I think, is going to build acceptance long term, which is what we need. I love that. So you said you've been doing this work for 24 years. How has that changed you as a person? Well, it's definitely become part of who I am. So it's it's not one of those careers that it's just a job and then you go home. And, um, you know, it's it's certainly helped strengthen my intestinal fortitude, especially when you hear certain things you don't like that might make you upset. Like, you know, sort of comments like I mentioned before about relating income to quality of a person, things that used to make me really upset. So I had to learn how to kind of squish down that that anger and combat that with real answers and also being calm and listening. So it certainly developed my listening skills really well. And people are like, you never get upset about anything. You never get ruffled. I'm like, <laughs> trust me, <laughs> it take, took many years, many years. It's also just been an amazing journey and opportunity to learn so many different things. Developers, we're, we call ourselves jack of all trades. We know a little bit about a lot of things. So you get to learn about construction and design, architecture, environmental sustainability, p- politics, community engagement, finances. I mean, there's a huge amount of things to learn and it takes a lot of time. But, you know, I I like to talk to some students once in a while and encourage them to get into this field because I said, I've never been bored in 24 years, not one day. So if you want a job that's going to keep you interested, stimulated, always learning and gratified, it's a perfect career. That's fantastic. And for me, like one, one takeaway is like this constant thread of having a dialogue, listening to the people that you're working with whether that's the community inside your building or the community around where you're doing a new building. I really love that as part of your ethos. And that really comes through as like why you've been so successful in what you're doing. I think so. Listening is a skill that I think we're always trying to evolve over time um, and, you know, try to remove your own biases and be thoughtful and things like that. So, you know, I can't say by any stretch, any of us have perfected it, but we keep trying and we keep trying to do better. I think we're doing pretty well right now in terms of taking input and trying to apply it. So sometimes things will design in a building that don't really work very well. So we're like, okay, let's not do that again. So it's an iterative process and you have to be comfortable with that that it's not always going to go perfect, but you can still fix it or address it and then do better next time. Beautiful. How do people find out about the Community Corps? So we have a website where we put a lot of information. So please do visit it. It's communitycorp.org. We also have socials, Community Corp SM, I think is our 
Instagram and Facebook. I think we're also on Twitter slash X. I don't know because we used to be. Um, But yeah, those are the best places. The website's really a great place to get more information and it'll give you an opportunity to reach out to us as well. Perfect. And if people are in the Santa Monica area, how can they get involved and how do they find out about activities that you have going on? Sure. I'll definitely say if people support the kind of work that we do or other nonprofits do, definitely get involved. There's a lot of different ways you can help. One of the easiest is to show up in support of projects where there might be people who are not supportive. That really does help, especially if you live in the neighborhood. If you go to a neighborhood council meeting or a city council meeting and say, I support this, people will listen to that. So you can use your voice. Certainly voting for pro-housing or affordable housing type candidates, learning about the issues and being supportive of those candidates will be hugely helpful. We do sometimes have volunteer opportunities. So you can look on our website or on other websites to find out information. Sometimes there's like garden program opportunities, or I was thinking we could do book clubs if people want to run book clubs, things like that. So many different things you can do. It just depends on people's interests. And then, of course, donating is always helpful. All our service programs run in a deficit, so we do fundraise for those. So all of us are always uh, very grateful for support. You're such an amazing example of a successful affordable housing project. I didn't realize you had been going for so long. So it's really amazing that you've been able to build up that credibility in your neighborhood where people know who you are and respect what you do. Thank you. Yeah, I I did want to mention that we're also trying to expand what we're offering to the community. So beyond things like design and things like that, one of the things that's come up is affordable business space, particularly in these high resource neighborhoods, small business spaces are very unaffordable. So we are almost complete with the venture to create our first small business marketplace that will offer entrepreneurship education and support and offer affordable spots for new businesses to sell things and try to launch businesses. So that will be opening at the end of February. It's called Pico Roots Marketplace. So if you happen to be around the Santa Monica area, check it out and come support those local small businesses. It's at 1819 Pico. So right across from Santa Monica College in Santa Monica. And like I said, it'll be opening at the end of February, beginning of March. If you go on our website, you can join our newsletter and then you'll get all the information or follow us on socials. And then the other thing I was going to mention is that our big venture now that we're undertaking is we purchased a vacant church that we're going to work to renovate and turn into a community and cultural center. But we can't use housing dollars, so that's why it's a challenge. If people are out there and they're like, hey, I want to support this, that's a great thing for them to jump in on and and help out. What sort of activities will happen at the, the cultural center? Well, it'll be open for the community uses. So we're hoping there will be faith-based uses first and foremost, because it it has been historically a sacred place for a traditionally Black community in Venice. And then we're hoping to have recreational programs that will serve the community. So it's still very much a work in progress. We're going to be doing some more community meetings to hear what the community would like to see there. Oh, that's super awesome. It's been really fun having you on today to share your journey of what you've built with Community Corp, having over 2,000 properties, venturing into to new areas like your Pico Marketplace where, for businesses and developing community centers. If you're listening, again, that's communitycorp.org or communitycorpsm on the social media. You can also find out more information in the show notes. But Tara, thank you so much for coming on today. I really appreciated diving into this. 
Well, thanks, Adam, so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure talking with you. And yes, I hope people will continue to stay connected to us. Yeah. And please let me know if you got something out of this. I love how we covered the whole life cycle of, hey, what is it like actually finding a new property, building it? What's the journey like for people looking for affordable housing? And then how are you really making this program shine so that the residents get the most out of it? So it's been such a fun conversation. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. Have a great day. Oh, 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 oh,